Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. So some exciting news from uh, kind of the, the biblical world. Uh, uh, people that were researching in the Middle East, they discovered some new manuscripts, some kind of new editions of the New Testament, and they discovered this, this new story that we're not as familiar with. And it's the story of Jesus, and he walks into a restaurant, and there's a, a hostess there, and he says, I need a table for 26. She says, well, why do you need a table for 26? There are 12 of you disciples, and then there's one of you. You only need a table for 13. And Jesus says, well, we like to all sit on one side of the table, so we need a table for 26. With that, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for laughter. Thank you for jokes. I pray that you would uh, just speak to our hearts today. Uh, Speak to our hearts through your word and teach us what you want to teach us, encourage us in the ways you want to encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So is it okay to like tell a joke in church? Like is that an acceptable thing? And now since I just did it, like clearly I believe it's okay to tell a a joke in church. I believe it's okay to laugh. But does the Bible have an opinion on laughter and joy and happiness? Well, you might be able to tell from my sermon title today, Joyful Disciples, I think the Bible actually encourages laughter and joy and happiness in a church body. I think we're going to see that in the book of Philippians today. We're not supposed to be a kind of a a sad, solemn crew. There are occasions for that. But Paul, in our passage, he calls for rejoicing. In verse 14, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. So that's kind of the, the negative, right? Don't, don't be complainers. Don't be whiners. But on the other hand, Paul also says in verse 18, he gives the positive command. He says, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul wants a church full of joy. He's writing to the church at Philippi in ancient Macedonia, modern-day Greece, and he wants this church and this community to be a church filled with gladness. Now, we've been looking over the last couple weeks at the book of Philippians, really since the start uh, of the kind of the, the fall semester. But in the book of Philippians, we've noticed that Paul kind of breaks chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 18, into kind of three different commands. He's, he's calling disciples to conduct themselves, so believers in Christ, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
And for the last two weeks, we've looked at the first two ways to live worthy of the kind of the life-transforming, world-changing good news of Jesus Christ. So in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, we saw this. Live worthy of the gospel through unity. We talked about uh, unity. What is, it? what is unity? And how are we supposed to be centered in unity around the gospel, the full gospel message? And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 that we looked at last week. This has the, the, the hymn that Paul wrote, the kind of the early church hymn. Live worthy of the gospel through humility. So disciples are supposed to be marked by unity, unity as a church body, but then also by humility. And that leads us to this week. What's kind of the last call? How are we to live worthy of the gospel? Well, it's through joy. Live worthy of the gospel through joy. Now, I want to kind of pause on that theme of just what it means to live worthy of the gospel before we focus on the joy emphasis. So first, how do we know that like Paul is continuing this theme? Just from from reading your Bible, from understanding it, like Paul does not really break down his, his, his scripture text into like three-point sermons with sub-points. It's not real clear sometimes. How do we know that he's kind of continuing his thought from conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel? Well, it's because if you look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 27 through 218, it's full of connecting words like therefore that connects kind of two different trains of thought. It's full of imperatives, which means like commands. He's, he's, he's giving the disciples instructions, the, the believers at Philippi. But there's also one theme, one theme that really unites the passage, and that's Christ, focusing on Jesus, living differently because of Christ, living differently with the mindset of Christ, living differently because one day Christ is going to return. Now, last week there was this pattern, right? Paul said, Live worthy of the gospel through humility. But before he ever got into that call, he gave us kind of a message of grace, a message of encouragement, saying what God has already done on our behalf. In today's passage, there's something similar. Paul reminds us before he calls us to obey, or even as he's calling us to obey, he also reminds us that we can obey because of grace because of what God has given to us because of what God is doing in our lives. And so I want to look at a call, what Paul calls us to do, and then I also want to look at a confidence that we can do what Paul is calling us to because of God's working in our lives because of grace. So I'm going to direct your eyes, direct your attention back to verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my dear brothers, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So what do we hear first? First we hear a call, a call for You to work out your salvation. Paul is actually giving us a call to work out our salvation. So this call, he's saying you corporately, 
It's not just like you individually. You work it out on your own, by yourself. You're kind of the, the star of the show. No, it's, he's saying to the church at Philippi, all of you, y'all, <laughs> y'all work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? It means as a church body, as a group, figure out what it means to be saved by Jesus Christ, what it means to be his disciples, be his followers, just figure it out day by day, journey through life together, discovering grace, discovering God's forgiveness and goodness, and seeking to align your life with the life of Christ Jesus. That's what a call to work out your salvation. You're saved. Now, what is it, how does it change your life? How does it impact you? I loved Jeremy's story today because he realized being saved is just not, it's not just head knowledge, right? It's not just knowing all the, the stories in the Bible, even the one I shared today. Like it's, it's more than just knowing Bible trivia, isn't it? Being saved is having your whole life transformed. There's no part of your life that you say, God, you can't touch this part of my life. You can't change this part of who I am. And that's what it means to, to work out your, your whole life in awe of, of God's salvation. Paul gives this message to the Philippians. It's a big call. And he says something really interesting. He says, he says you know, do this not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, Paul isn't always going to be in Philippi. Paul isn't always going to be alive. He's not always going to be in their city watching over them. And yet they're still supposed to honor God and obey God and, and figure out their salvation. Now, some of my family is visiting tonight, so I thought I would take the opportunity to kind of publicly confess some of my things to my parents, my, my childhood sins before them. And uh, growing up, sometimes, uh, you know, when my parents would leave, my brothers and I, we would kind of like sneak television. Like we would try to sit on the back of our couch. We had this high up couch. And with one eye, we would like watch daytime television. And through our other eye, we would like watch the driveway for the moment that my parents' van pulled into the driveway. And when we saw that green van, it was like code red lockdown, like turn off the television, run back to your, your books, to your homework, and try to look like you weren't just watching Judge Judy. Like that was, that was our call. That was kind of our game plan. So I'm sorry, Mom and Dad. I acted one way when my parents were home and another when my parents weren't home. <laughs> and what is Paul saying? He's saying, act, act like, not even that I'm always there. Act like I'm there. You know, Paul could be a bit intimidating, I suppose. But he says, act, act in a way that honors God with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So is Paul saying, be afraid of me? Like, be terrified of me? no. He's talking about the fear of the Lord. The Bible calls it the fear of the Lord or the, the kind of the, the fear of God. <laughs> uh, I, we, should, we should in some ways fear God. We should have a healthy respect and reverence for him. 
Uh, I was talking to a friend this week, and uh, he listened uh, to my, my sermon on hell. <laughs> so I preached a sermon on hell at the end of August, and one of the things he took away was it, from my sermon was, oh, you want us to be afraid. <laughs> it's like, yeah, actually, that's, that's true. Good takeaway. We should have some fear of God's judgment, of God's holiness, of how powerful and how good God is. My family is visiting, so I, I, they have three little kids, and I don't want them to get electrocuted, so I bought those outlet covers and put them in the little outlets all around our house. See, I have a healthy fear of what electricity can do to a small kid. And I also have a fear of what might happen if my brother found out that I did something like that. It would kill me if they got shocked. I have a fear. I have a healthy fear. I don't want to dishonor anyone. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Whether I'm here or whether I'm absent, we're to have a healthy fear. Now, what does this mean for us as a church? What does that mean for us as a church body? I think corporately that means that when we enter into worship, when we come here, we're to come to worship in awe and in reverence before God. Whether or not we have joy and laugh, is different than whether we just have respect. We, we come and we're ready to hear from God through his word. Also, as we're not here, as we're not kind of gathered, we're on our different uh, ministry teams or uh, volunteering in our various places, how can we be honoring God in those situations behind closed doors? How can we act like God is always present, like Christ is always in the room, <laughs> We want to honor him. Now, this is a challenge, right? To live all of our life like God is present, like Christ is present. But remember, Paul gives us a confidence. He doesn't just call us to do something, he gives us confidence that we can do something. And the confidence is this because God is working in us. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So we're supposed to work our salvation out. We're supposed to figure it out day by day, work together. But at the same time, God is working salvation in. God is working in our lives and in our heart and in our church. He's doing something. He's orchestrating something and life change and transformation that in our own power, we can never do. But the Holy Spirit comes and he does that. My translation says purpose. God is fulfilling his good purpose. Most modern translations actually say pleasure. See, God is doing what he wants. <laughs> and what do we know about God? The Bible actually says God is good. <laughs> God always wants what is best. He always desires what is good, even when it doesn't feel like it's good in our lives. God always desires what's best. Romans 8.28 is one of my favorite passages. Let me go back one verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, God is working in our lives. He is using every situation, every trouble, every high, every low, 
to bring about our salvation, <laughs> to bring about our holiness, the good successes and the hard failures. But what exactly is the good that God is doing in our lives? What's his plan? Well, God is using everything, every trial, every circumstance to make us more like Jesus. I want to show you the the following two verses, 29 and 30. It says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that's the good thing God is doing. He is making us more like Jesus. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. See, through this life, Jesus is making us more and more like Christ. That's what we call sanctification. See, we've been saved, and now our, our lives are starting to look a little bit more like as if we are saved. Our passage today, you know, work it out because God is working in you, is all about this thing called sanctification. God is making you more like Christ, and yet at the same time, God is saying, come, (laughs) obey, seek to honor me. I I will bring you to glory. (laughs) The end of this passage talks about those who are called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You know what that means? That means one day... (laughs) You will be perfect. You will be perfectly holy. You'll be perfectly like Christ. And at the same time, you'll also be yourself. Wow. That's good news. See, we all want to be better, don't we? We all want to, know, we all want, want to be like perfect Christians, always honoring a God with our lives, always knowing the, the right decisions to make, the right choices. You know, it's difficult, right? Because we're, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're not dead. The only good Christian is a dead Christian. <laughs> Think of an activity you've uh, never been very good at, but you always wanted to be better at. So maybe some sort of sports, cross country, running track, football, soccer, baseball, CrossFit, all legitimate sports options that you want to be better at, but you've never been that good at it. Or maybe for some of you, sports isn't your thing, and you, you wish you were just like smarter. <laughs> you wish you were more academic, more intelligent, like a better reader and had more knowledge. For others, maybe it's like arts. You wish you were a better painter or a better crafter or just better at cooking. For some of us, like me, it's all three of those things. Well, what if you heard this message that God is saying, you know, I'm going to make you this perfect thing. You can be as good as you want at any sort of activity. I'm going to bring you to that point, but you have to get out on the field. You have to play baseball. You have to try cooking. You have to read a book. That's kind of like what Paul is saying here. He's saying, he's saying, come. Work it out. Try. Get out there. Trust God. It's not going to be easy, but one day you'll be perfect. (laughs) You'll be an all-star academic, an all-star baseball player. You'll be at that end goal in glory, but trust me now and day by day, walk in line with my calling. 
That's the, that's the message Paul is giving us. We're called to work out salvation, but we're confident because God is working in us and he will bring us to that glory place. And this is why we can be joyful disciples. See, this is the good news right here. Yeah, we're called to work it out, but God's working it out in us. Okay, well, I don't have to be as stressed. I don't have to be as anxious about my faith. I can be joyful. I can be happy. I can laugh because God is working in me. (laughs) And I'm going to mess up day by day. I'm going to sin. I'm going to hurt people. I'm going to hurt myself. But God is at work. And this is what it means to live worthy of the gospel through joy. That as we're we're living in light of our salvation day by day, we're discovering more and more joy because of what God is doing in us and through us. Now, what does Paul say in verse 12? He says, to obey. Therefore, my friends, as you have always obeyed, okay, so he's calling us to obey, to, to live differently. But how are we supposed to do that? Verses 14 through 18 kind of explain how. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, chances are I don't need to go into the original language for you to understand what grumbling is. It's like we're all naturally gifted at it, complaining, sighing, like moaning. Oh, I don't want to do that thing. Drag my feet. It's telling others you're upset when you don't get your way. It's having a bad attitude. See, Paul doesn't just want believers who do all the right things. Paul wants believers who have the right heart as they do the right things, who are full of joy. See, we can, we can like, present ourselves pretty good outwardly, but if on the inside we're just resentful and bitter and frustrated, that's not good. God wants to give us life on the inside. He wants to change our heart and that change our actions and our emotions. Grace starts on the inside and works out. Uh, Monica and I were over at the aisles for dinner one night. They were teaching Emma to obey with a happy heart. Obey with a happy heart. I love that. Like, I need people to tell me that. Jonathan, you need to obey with a happy heart. See, that message isn't just for children. (laughs) That's like the Spark Notes version of Philippians right here. Obey with a happy heart. Live worthy of the gospel through joy. But for some of us, joy can be hard to find, can it? <laughs> it's so much easier to complain, right? It's always, it's always easier to point out what's wrong with the world than to have gratitude for the things God is doing well in the world. And so I want to give us three kind of steps, three ways that we can be fostering joy as a church. If you're struggling with joy in your own life, how you can be fostering joy in your heart. And the first one is kind of a negative one, but we're going to talk about it for a little bit. Remember the result of grumbling. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God 
without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Now, in Philippi, two women are arguing. Their names are Iodia and Syntyche. And we also know that there are believers either in Rome or Philippi who are preaching Christ out of envy. So they're, they're kind of uh, arguing with Paul. They're, they're Christians, but they're, they're making ministry about the wrong things, about themselves instead of about Christ. And uh, Paul, in his letter, he, he says, okay, so, so we have some grumblers in our midst, so we have some arguers. Let's remember some other people who were marked by grumbling. And this is what the line warped and crooked generation is referring to. It's, it's referring to a previous warped and crooked generation. It's pointing to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are warped and crooked generation. So Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Old Testament. And in this passage, Moses is singing a song. He's singing a song about kind of the, the people of Israel and how this generation and the previous generation, they're just warped, they're crooked, they're, their hearts are not loving God. Their hearts have a bad attitude. Now, do you remember what happened in kind of the story of Exodus? We just went through the book of Exodus as a, as a series. In the book of Exodus, God leads a people the Israelites, out of bondage. They've been in slavery for 400 years. God delivers them. He takes them to the promised land, this ancient land of Canaan. Moses is leading them. And they get to the land. Moses sends 12 spies into the land of Canaan. And they go out and they search out the land. It's rich. It's fruitful. It's, it's bountiful. It's wonderful. And they come back and they say, we can't take the land. Ten of the twelve do not believe. Two of the twelve say, yes, we can take the land. But they're too afraid because the local inhabitants are like, they call them giants. It just looks threatening. And what happens? The whole people of Israel, they get afraid, they get anxious, and they start to grumble. Numbers 14.2 says this. It says, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. That's pretty harsh. Paul is saying, don't be like the Israelites. And that call is the, the same for us. God does so much for us. He, he, he blesses us. He, he gives us you know, wonderful buildings, wonderful community. And yet, we still find ways to say, God, is not enough. God, I'm not content. When the Israelites grumbled, what was the core issue? They weren't trusting God. They, they weren't having faith. And like, when I'm tempted to grumble about things, I, I rarely pause and say, am I expressing my mistrust in God right now? Because if everything is part of his plan, is there anything that we can truly like, grumble and complain about? Because then we're saying, God, like you messed up here. <laughs> That's what grumbling is, saying, God, you were wrong here. I don't have faith. You know what happened to those Israelites that grumbled in the wilderness, that wouldn't trust God? They died. God sentenced them to death 
Anyone that was 20 years older, 20 years or older, sentenced to die as the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. God raised up a new generation. They still struggled with this same heart attitude. Grumbling leads to death. It can lead literally to the death of a church. It can lead to the death of a ministry. But also it just leads to like spiritual and relational deaths in our own life. God wants to give us life. Look at the opposite side of Paul's word here. He says, uh, do everything uh, without grumbling or complaining so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. See, when we're full of joy and when we don't complain, we don't grumble, we actually become positive witnesses to our our community, to those around us, to the people in our church. When, When we're going through a tough trial, going through like a sickness or maybe a job loss, and people see how we are handling it because of Christ, that is an encouragement, that is a witness to them. We as a church or a new church, we have the opportunity to form a culture of joy, of gladness, of being a bright shining star to the community of Westford and to everyone that comes through our doors. Some of you have met him, uh, Anthony Cordemach. I miss serving with him. But one of the reasons I, I miss serving with him is because he, he was not a grumbler. He was full of joy. So for the last couple of years, he was on our leadership team, the church plant ministry team, before it transitioned into elders. And we had, like, I think 65 meetings over the course of two years around that number. And a lot of those meetings were multiple hours, like 7 to 10, 10.30 p.m. at night. And the later it got, the more opportunities, I guess, there were to grumble and to complain and say, I'm tired. But what Anthony would do, he'd actually like get more joyful, he'd get sillier <laughs> and start cracking jokes and he was in charge of the projection so like weird things would start to appear on our 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 projector as we were trying to do so it wasn't always very constructive uh, but it was joyful <laughs> let's be a, a church like that that when it's so tempting to complain and grumble instead we 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 rejoice and we joke with each other and we encourage each other. So the first way is to develop joy is to remember the, the result of grumbling, but also like the, the, the bad result, but you can also remember the positive result, the positive result of having joy. It's an encouragement to those around us. And number two is hold fast the word of life. Verse 16 says, as you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. In this passage, Paul is emphasizing God's word, and he calls it the word life. The word life. The word of life. We as a church, like Kathy talked about how we, one of our core values is Bible. Like we're trying to memorize God's word, and it's not just so we have more head knowledge, it's so that we have heart knowledge and life knowledge that changes us. So I guess a a challenging question for each of us is, is God's word an emphasis in my life? 
And is God's word present enough in my life to actually give me life? If God's word gives us life, do we need it? Yeah, we do. Kathy Keller asked her husband once, they were talking about prayer, but she asked him once, like if you had to take one pill every single day in order to live, would you ever forget to take that pill? So in other words, if you forget to take the pill, you're dead. Just the next day you just die. Would you ever forget? Like that would be the first thing you did waking up in the morning. You would take that pill because that pill gives you life. God's word gives us life. We need life. We live in a world of death. We live in a world that glorifies death, that promotes it. And if we're going to be a bright, shining light in this world, we need God's word. We need life to exude out of us. And Paul is calling them, saying that when you, when you have God's word in your heart, when you love God's word, you will run the race. You will endure till the end. This is just a practical step we can take to, to, to fostering joy and just fostering a life that honors God. The word for vain here, we actually learned this word last week. The, the, you know, if, you, if, you don't, if you don't keep running, it will be vain for me. It'll be Empty-handed. This is the word kinos, and it means empty-handed. It's like the, the Massachusetts lottery, kino. When you play kino, you walk away empty-handed. Paul doesn't want to walk away from ministry, from writing this letter to the Philippians, from loving them, from serving them. He doesn't want to walk away empty-handed. He wants to walk away rich, and he knows that he will as they continue to hold on to God's word. God wants us to hold firmly, hold firmly to his word. This word for hold firmly also means hold out. See, God's word is so precious, it's so life-giving. We don't want to be the only ones to experience it, do we? Because we know people all around us, maybe people here in this room that need life that needs spiritual life, our family members, our friends, our coworkers. So as we hold firmly to God's word, actually we need to hold it out. <laughs> we need to hold it out to those around us. See, as we focus on hiding God's word in our heart, and as we focus on extending God's word to those around us, will we have any time to complain <laughs> or grumble? No, because we'll be so focused on what God is doing in our lives and what God is doing out there. It's as we begin to focus on ourselves and my situation and forgetting about God, oh, woe is me. That's when that happens. That's when grumbling happens as we forget about God and his word and what he's trying to do with those around us. When a, when a child is like crying or complaining, what's one of the tools parents sometimes use? 
redirection. They take, you know, uh, some food or an activity or just try to get the child to think about something else so that they'll stop crying and, and focus on this other thing and life will just be just brand new in that moment. Well, God, our Heavenly Father, has a tool for redirecting our attention as well. It's his word. His word takes our thoughts, takes our motivations off of ourself and places it on God. And as we focus on God and focus on Christ, we begin to crumble less, rejoice more. So what's the first step? Remember the result of grumbling or not grumbling. And two, hold fast the word of life, the Bible. This is the final step. Find your joy in Jesus. Verse 17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says he's being poured out like a drink offering. Well, what is a drink offering? The Israelites, they did sacrifices in the morning and in the evening. And when they did a sacrifice, it wasn't just this, this lamb. They, could also, they also did a, this, this mixture that they mixed together oil, olive oil, and flour, and wine. And they would pour that out. That would be kind of a, a fragrant aroma to God. Paul is saying that his life is being poured out in this moment. That means as he is suffering, so he's under house arrest in Rome, as he's suffering, as the threat of death looms near, as he's writing this letter, as he's thinking about this, these people, his life is being poured out as an offering, and yet he can still rejoice. I don't know about you, but when I go through hard times, when I go through frustrating circumstances, I don't want to rejoice. I don't even want to think about my life as being poured out as a drink offering, but what if it is? And why can't we rejoice? What in Paul's life despite any circumstance, could cause him to rejoice. It says he is willing to do it for their faith. Well, who is their faith in? Their faith is in Christ Jesus, the work of Christ in their lives, what Christ has accomplished. Did you know that, yes, Paul is being poured out as a drink offering, but did you know that one came before him whose life was also poured out as a drink offering? That's Jesus. Christ Jesus was poured out as a drink offering first. And we see this in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. We don't usually talk about this as a drink offering. Maybe Jesus like spilled his cup while taking communion. No. Jesus is... Is, is talking about that Old Testament imagery that his life is being poured out as a drink offering for us. His body, his blood, they're the, the flour and the wine. He is being poured out for us when he is crucified. Why would Jesus be willing to give up his life for us? It's because saving us brings him joy. Hebrews 12 says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and it sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
That means like Jesus saving his bride, saving his church, saving all of you, anyone who has put their faith in Christ Jesus and repented of their sins, Jesus doing that brings him so much joy that we bring Jesus joy, happiness, that work of redeeming us from our sins. That's what makes it worth it. See, Jesus was willing to go to the cross to take care of our grumbling (laughs) and our complaining. See, when we grumble and we complain and we express mistrust in God, that's a sin. That's a sin and we deserve to die. And if you confess your sin and put your faith in Christ, it's like like Jesus takes all the grumbling you've ever done or ever will do and he loads it on his back and he goes to the cross and he dies And three days later, when he rises from that grave, that grumbling is gone. That complaining is paid for. So this is the gospel. Not that we are perfect people, but that a perfect person died for us. He gives us, when he rises from the grave, he gives us his joy. He grants us his perfection, his his always good attitude. You get credit for it. And now as we go through every day kind of thinking about Christ and what he's done for us, well, we can have joy. (laughs) Christ went through that. He's given me all of his joy and he's paid for my complaining. Then is there anything I can complain about anymore? No. Find your joy in Jesus. This leads me to my final thought, my final big idea is that Jesus is worth your joy. In Christ, we can have so much joy, so much happiness. I think God does want us to be happy, but for the right reasons. A heart that has been transformed and changed by Christ. In Christ, we have eternal life, and that eternal life starts in this life. So we can taste a little bit of that glory, a little bit of that joy, that eternal joy right now as a church and as individuals. Even if we're being poured out as a drink offering through hardship, Christ is with us. Christ loves us. And he's worth our joy. A little boy was standing in the lobby of a church and he was staring up at a big plaque. This plaque had some names of people on it. The pastor came in explaining to the little boy, you know, these are, these are the names of the men and women from this church who died in the service. And the little boy said, well, how long was the church service? <laughs> so with that, let me pray. <laughs> Jesus, you are worth our joy. You are worth our joy. Transform our hearts. Give us happy hearts, not because of anything that we have accomplished or done, but because of Christ, because of you. It's in your name we pray, amen.